and if you're joining us for the first time here today, we decided to take a look at this giant of an Old Testament figure because in light of our spiritual theme this year of being called to Christ and called to serve, we think that has been embodied in a very distinct and powerful way in the Old Testament. And today our passage really comes to us in Genesis chapter 21, where we see the life of Abraham, but in this passage, he is a changed man. He is a, a different person because we've been saying in this series, when you're called to Christ and then you're called out and pushed out to serve, you never come to Jesus in an authentic way and remain the same. You're always changed when you meet your Savior, Jesus. And Abraham is an example of that where he came to Jesus Christ in one way. And in this passage that we're about to read, he leaves and serves as a completely different and changed man. So if you're able, I want to ask you to please stand for the reading of God's Word. I'm going to read from Genesis 21, verses 22 to 34, which is the end of the chapter. Genesis 21, 22 to 34. This is God's Word. Give your undivided attention to the reading of His Word. This is what Moses has written. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now therefore swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or deal or with my descendants or with my posterity, but as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing? You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart, and Abimelech said to Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, These seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I have dug this well. Therefore, that place was called Beersheba, because there there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. And this is God's word. You can take your seats at this time. What I think this passage, which is really rich and multifaceted, has a lot to tell us about God's faithfulness, his covenant with his people, the covenant that Abraham and Abimelech has made, this covenant which we understand to be a formal agreement, a contract. But underneath that all, what I think the Bible in this passage is teaching us, one of many lessons, is to look at how do people change? What does change look like in somebody's life? And when you look at Abraham, he was changed by the very power and the grace of God. And I think when you look at how he changed, what are the indicators of change? What are the symptoms of change, the fruit of change? I think that will be able to be something that you and I learn about our lives. Because I'm going to guess no matter what, you and I on some level want to change. We want to become holier, more patient, Maybe you want to change our life circumstances. You want to change your friends. So you can change things outside of you, but you can also change things inside of you. 
We had a coffee and conversation yesterday led very well by Dr. Gower. We talked about one of the most common experiences of the human condition, struggling with anger or frustration. And some of you just want to be a little bit more patient and grow out of being such an angry person. How do you do that? What do you look for? How can you actually change? And this is what I think Abraham serves as such a great example for us because one of the easiest ways to know that you and I have changed for the better, the authentic and genuine way to know that you became a better person, is how you relate and how you deal with other people, especially your enemies or people you don't get along with. In fact, I would say that one of the greatest measures of maturity lies not in your appearance or your age, but in your ability to accept responsibility, develop human love and emotional intelligence, and navigate life's challenges when it comes to relationships. Even in the secular world, friends, all you have to do is just Google this. There are plenty of life coaches out there, and almost everyone says the same thing. Every secular life coach, they say everyone that they coach in their lives say basically this. Everyone wants change in their lives, but not everyone wants to be changed. Does that make sense? Everyone wants change, but not everyone wants to change. Because at the end of the day, even in the biblical perspective, the greatest problem that you and I have is not something outside of you, it's something inside of you, and the Bible calls that sin. And so, yeah, there are real circumstances that are broken and hard and allow you and make you suffer, but if you really want to have a change in your life, the target is not going to be the area around you, but really the heart that is within you. Abraham shows us here he has grown and matured and developed. He has changed his life inside out, and you can tell by the way that he treats people. He grew, he matured, he used to lie and to fight, be self-centric, now he's other-centered, and he's a peacemaker, and he's about the covenant of God. And I'm going to show you at least two points, two points of symptoms or evidences that you can look at to see if you changed that are all couched in this relationship between Abimelech and Abraham. One, you can tell that Abraham changed by the way that he treats Abimelech. And you can tell how you change by the way that you hopefully treat people. Secondly, when you begin to change for the good inside out, it makes you more grounded in life. Now, keep that in mind. We're not saying boring. We're not saying no sedentary. We're saying that you're more rooted in life. You're grounded in life. Another way to think about this is that two characteristics to look for change, real life-giving, spirit-empowered change, is that one, you become more loving. Secondly, you become more grounded and steadfast. So let's look at this in Abraham and try to apply it to our lives here today. How do you change? What does it look like? Well, the first thing is that you become more loving, you become more savvy, you become more peaceful, you treat people differently. Because even in verse 22, it says, At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, one thing you can note, just as a parenthetical side note, is that all, automatically we know Abraham is a different person because the king of the Philistines, and the general of his army, these are the highest men of status. They come personally to talk to Abraham. I mean, what king and what general of the army come themselves to talk to a shepherd? They would send their courier, send their soldiers, their infantry, their messenger. 
But Abraham had such status and gravitas that you had a king and a general come to him directly. Now, as a side note, that's very telling because we don't get into this, but it's telling us the world's power, the, the world's political might, the world's influence, the general and the king, they represent power, money, and political control. They come to God's shepherd. And keep in mind, shepherds were not well-respected, especially if you fast-forward to the New Testament. So you have a general and an arm, a king who are the highest social class. They come personally with respect and deference to somebody in their culture that is low social class, like a shepherd. But why do they do this? It's because Abraham is a changed man. And they tell you in verse 22, it's because they saw God was with Abraham. That tells us as a counseling note, your identity, your status here is not going to be according to the world. Your significance, what makes you feel good, what you think gives you a sense of belonging and identity is not ultimately going to be of this world. It's going to be because God is with you. That's something that Christians, you and I, have to know. That's what Abraham, he's a changed man. His identity, his sense of belonging, his purpose in life is not dictated by the world, but because God was with him. Now, look at verse 22. A real quick note. God is with you in all that you do. Notice that it's not just some things that Abraham's done, not just the good things that Abraham's done, not just his successes and his victories, even though I think that's a big part of it because God pray, Abraham prayed to God and then, Abraham, then God healed the sicknesses in Abimelech's family. So I think that's part of it. But they say God is with you in all that you do. Did you know Abraham lied? Did you know he failed? Did you know that he was faithless? Did you know that he was selfish and he risked his wife Sarah, put her life at risk to save his own butt? But it said God was with Abraham in all that he did, both the good and the successes, but also the failures and the sin, because God is gracious, he's steadfast, he's with him. In fact, the first encounter that Abraham had with Abimelech, which God was with Abraham, Abraham lied. He lied the second time about his wife. But here you see that Abraham treats people differently, Abimelech differently, because he doesn't lie, but he's someone who is trustworthy. He keeps his word. That's why in verse 23, Abimelech says, Abraham, let's make a covenant. I see that God's with you. I respect your God. Promise me that you will always show goodness and kindness to me and to my children and my grandchildren, my posterity, and the future generations. Abimelech is coming to Abraham and banking this future generation is family on Abraham's word. Isn't that remarkable? Think about it. If your first and only interaction with somebody is that they lied to you, and it was a big lie, and you thought that he was really giving up his wife for himself to save his butt, and then the second time you come to Abraham, you're saying, you seem changed. You lied to me first, but now you seem changed. You're a trustworthy person. I'm going to bank my entire family and the future generations and their health on your word. Just swear to me, Abraham, that you'll do this. That's a changed man. He has character. He has integrity. He's a man who can trust his word. And that's the change that we see in Abraham. He's changed in the way that he treats people. He doesn't want to lie to Abimelech. He wants to honor a contract and live peacefully with Abimelech. He makes a covenant so that Abraham would keep Abimelech's people safe and sound in the future generation. So Abraham says, I swear, I promise I will do this. Man, the irony is remarkable. 
You have a king and a general who has all the power and all the forces and all the soldiers, but they're coming to Abraham asking for protection. How can they do this? Because God is with him. They saw that God is powerful. There's something different. They trust Abraham's character. Abraham treats Abimelech differently. He's not as self-centric or concentrated. He wants to maintain peace. He wants to live in this land together with a treaty, with a covenant, with Abimelech. And I think that all has happened because Abraham has changed from the inside out. God was with him. See, even the, the God's people, it, that phrase, God is with you, that has carried on through the brokenness of all of Abraham's family. In fact, Abimelech would see in Genesis 26, verse 28, that Isaac, God was with you. I can see it. It will be noted of Jacob in Genesis 30, verse 27, God is with you. And then later on, he looks at Joseph in Genesis 39, verse 3, God is with you. So we can at least say this, friends, if God is with you, you will change. You will change from the inside out. Your identity will be with who God is for you. You will treat people differently. It could be slow, but you will treat them with integrity. You'll treat them with love. You'll treat them with kindness. You'll treat them with honesty, with your word. Because in light of the fact that Abimelech saw that God was with Abraham, he asked Abraham to deal with him and make a covenant, a treaty, and say, based on your God, Abraham, swear to me that you will always protect the generations of my family. That's a changed man. He says literally, treat my descendants according to kindness. That word kindness, friends, is a very rich and important word. Some argue that that one little word, kindness, that he's saying, Abraham, treat my family with kindness, that word may be the most powerful and the richest word in all of the Old Testament describing the heart and character of God. Because the idea is saying, God has shown you kindness, now you show me kindness. When you're thinking kindness in the English language, now that's not very powerful or very deep. But in the Old Testament, it's so deep that there's literally eight different words that describe the Hebrew word for kindness. The Hebrew word is hesed. It's translated as loyalty, as love, as mercy, as kindness, as forthrightness, as obligation. And Abraham changed in how he related to people. He went from lying to honesty, and he's going from fighting people to showing hesed to people. Kindness. This powerful word. See, in the Hebrew, hesed is God's loving kindness, his loyal love. It's the word that only comes to God's special people that he has a relationship with, which is Israel and then you and me in the church. God doesn't show hesed really to any other nation. It's really to his bride, to his children, to his church. It's a distinct word. It's a unique word. Hesed is everything that encapsulates God's heart for saving a people for himself. It moves God to enter into a relationship in Exodus 34, 6. It shows that I'm going to be in a covenant love with my people. You commit spiritual adultery, you sin, but I'm going to show my covenant hesed, my love to you, that's faithful and loyal. See, that word is everywhere in the most common passages, if you've grown up in the church, in the most common passages, that word hesed is everywhere in the verses that we know. For example, it's translated as mercy for people who cry out for forgiveness and for redemption. That's Numbers 14 in Exodus 34. Even the New Testament, you know the story of the Good Samaritan? The Good Samaritan is told to have shown hesed to the guy who was beaten on the road. In Psalm 136, did you know every line, every verse in Psalm 136 ended 
with the same word, hesed. Your steadfast love endures forever. Your steadfast love endures forever. And it's showing the magnitude of God's overwhelming hesed for you, this love, this loyalty, this mercy. And it's saying in Psalm 136, your steadfast hesed follows forever, endures forever. Lamentations 3, you know that one verse? We have old school songs based on this verse. The love of the Lord never ceases. His mercy never ends. But the love of the Lord is literally, literally, the hesed of the Lord never ceases to forgive you and to cover you. You know Psalm 23? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. At the end it says, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me. Literally it says there, surely goodness and hesed, mercy, will follow me, will pursue me. This is God's heart for you. And it's interesting that Abimelech, who's not a Christian, he's just a pagan political leader, uses this word and says, God is with you. Show that hesed to me in my future generations. It's a unique quality that speaks into God's people. People are hurting, people are broken, who are needy. That's why, you know, just taking one aspect of this to kind of draw this out. A lot of times in the New Testament, that word hesed is translated as mercy. And that's because God's love and his mercy is given to people who are hurting and broken and needy. Now think about it just for a second. When people are suffering, you see injustice, you see school shootings, you see racist acts on on the news. When you see something so deep and so hurtful, what do you say in that moment to yourself? Lord, have mercy. Back in 9-11, when the terrorist attack hit the Twin Towers and I was working at a bank about 10 blocks north, and I've shared this a couple of times, but what I felt that people were saying the most in the emotions of that day when they saw the planes hit the Twin Towers, when they saw it crumble, when the phones were out and everyone's crying, the one phrase I kept hearing was, have mercy, Lord have mercy. One of my favorite movies, Braveheart, probably about 20% of you know this movie, but it's really about this guy, uh, sort of a fictional character, William Wallace, he's like a freedom fighter, freedom fighter gets caught by the England, English government, the king, and he gets martyred. And it was one of the most atrocious and vicious ways to kill somebody. They put him on a table, they cut him up, they take his guts out. And you're seeing this, and all the, all the king's soldiers, all they wanted William Wallace to say is mercy. It was so bad that in the movie, you've seen that final scene, everyone in the crowd, all the English people who wanted William Wallace to die, saw that it was so excruciating Even the English people are saying, mercy. They're crying out, mercy, mercy. And William Wallace's close friends who are in secret and hiding, they're whispering to themselves, mercy, William, cry mercy. Do you know why? Because when you're hurting and when you're suffering, when you're broken and you're needy, even in 9-11, even in the school shootings, we never just say, Lord, have love. Lord, have power. Lord, have hope. That's all really true. But in the moment of hurt and suffering, what do we naturally say? Lord, have mercy. And that's why oftentimes the New Testament says in the Christian life is a life of suffering, a life of hardship, a life of brokenness. And that's why when you cry out for mercy, what we're asking for is really for Jesus. Lord, have mercy. Show us hesed. Christ is the fulfillment of this covenant love. Christ is the fulfillment of this mercy for sinners like you that we are broken and deserve hell, but now he gives us the fullness of life. The fullness of the Lord's hesed is seen in the cross of Jesus. 
There we see that the true hesed, Jesus Christ, the true mercy, the true covenant love, the true goodness, the only human, according to one commentator, who ever truly was loyal to God and to his neighbor in every aspect of his life, Jesus Christ, was treated as a covenant breaker, as a sinner, cursed for your sin and mine, so that we who are unfaithful might be clothed in his hesed love, faithful, redeemed. In this way, God's original purpose for you and me was to be redeemed and saved through the Hesed of Jesus Christ. That means you can always cry for Hesed. You can always cry for mercy. He will never let you go. The mercies, the Hesed of God is new every morning. You know, everything in life, this insight was by this counselor, Paul Tripp. Everything in this world needs a tune-up. Your car needs a tune-up. Your pencils need to be sharpened again. Your tires need to be replaced. Everything needs to tune up. Your computer will break down. Everything needs to be sharpened. Everything except the very love and mercy and hesed of God. Because Paul Tripp has said this, but if you're one of God's children, there's something in your life that won't wear out. In fact, it has the amazing capacity to be new day after day after day. Because scripture says that God's mercies are new every morning. And that's God's mercy to you, his Jesus Christ for you, his hesed embodied in flesh and blood for you. And if you could receive this, then you also will be changed just like Abraham. You could show hesed to the people in this room that you don't like, that have offended you, that have hurt you, that are discouraging to you. You could ask for God to show you hesed to those people because God says, as much as other people have hurt you and dishonored you and offended you, God is saying to you, that's what you are to me. And I sent you my hesed in Jesus Christ so that you could show the very genuine, authentic love to other people. No longer gossiping about them, hating them, but loving them, reconciling with them, talking to them, serving them. Because the love of God, his mercy in Jesus Christ has changed and transformed you. That's the first way you could tell that somebody has changed. That's why Abraham, I think, has changed. We just have the fuller picture in the New Testament. But this leads us to our second point. You can see how Abraham changed and how you can change, not only by showing hesed to people and showing how you treat people, but also because you become more grounded in life. Now, it doesn't mean that you're not passionate. It doesn't mean that you can't be, uh, how do I say this? It doesn't mean that you can't feel and lead your life through emotions and you could feel deeply. In fact, as a Christian, you should do all that. But somebody who grows and changes inside out with the gospel in Hesed becomes more rooted in life. Because if you're like a Jekyll and Hyde, in one moment you're serious and you're condemning and you're critical, and the next moment you're happy and jovial and you laugh and you're smiling, or one moment you're crying and the next moment you're yelling, if you're like that in life, then you may not be someone who the Bible says is really spiritually mature. Now, that's a silly example. Now, one of the things that I've definitely grown out of for the past 30 years is actually roller coasters. You know, so I could do the small ones at Disneyland. I don't think I'll ever go back to Magic Mountain. It's just, it's just too tense, too, too, I'm just too old. I get headaches, I get scared, I have a big fear of heights. I just don't like any of that. But everyone else loves it. You go up on these roller coasters and then they're just evolving, they're developed, you're hanging, it goes 
90 degrees down, and they're yelling, and they go up, and they go down, and they go up, and they go down. An experience of a lifetime, that's why you pay money to do this. When you're going up and down, yelling and screaming, laughing and crying, that's great for a roller coaster. That's not good for your life. That's not good for your life. It doesn't mean you don't feel the fullness of life in terms of tears and joy, but if you're living your life erratically up and down through the up and down roller coaster of your life, I don't know if that's what Christianity is about. So one way to tell that you're really growing is that you're rooted, that you're, you're grounded. Where do I get that from the passage about this rootedness? Read with me verse 33. Abraham, Abimelech, they make this contract. Abimelech says, swear to me you won't hurt my family. Abraham says, I swear. Abraham says, hey, your guy stole my well. Let me give you these animals. Let's just make this a pact. We're going to be bros. We're going to make this covenant. Just say that this well is mine. So they agree. They shake hands. The king and the general go back. And this is what Abraham does, which is sort of funny. He's like a perfect gardener. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. He planted a tree. Now, in case you're thinking I'm being allegorical, let me try to show you the significance of this. Trees are full of imagery in the Bible. You have the tree in the Garden of Eden. You have the tree in Revelation. Even Jesus uses this botanical metaphor saying, I am the vine, you are the branches, saying that the fig tree Jesus rebuked in the gospel. So trees have a lot of significance and symbolism and full of imagery in the Bible. This is one of those cases. Beersheba is probably a dry and arid land. That's why you needed water, because whatever wa wherever water is, you have life. So after making this covenant, Abraham has changed. He's more faithful. He's closer to God. He plants this tree. It's a symbol of shade and refreshment. Now, this tree grows to about 22 feet. So it gives health. It gives life. It's a symbol that Abraham is grounded in God because God gives Abraham shade. God gives Abraham nutrients, and fruit. The tree is a landmark maybe of God's grace, saying that by God's grace in his hesed, I'm in a relationship with God, and therefore Abraham plants this tree to commemorate this. It's a sign of God's covenant. His love and his kindness to Abraham is forever. So he plants this tree to say, this is God's love, his shade, his fruit, his life for me. And that's why in verse 33, Abraham says he's the everlasting God because the covenant is everlasting. My relationship with God is forever. Nothing can change and separate me from the love of God. You know, in fact, some commentators and scholars say this. In the third millennial rituals, the tamarisk tree was also a holy tree. It had purifying properties. Other religions would use the bark to carve symbols. And it was also used as a metaphor for stability in other pagan cultures. And I think maybe Abraham takes that and says, true stability is in the God of Israel. And that's why he calls upon the name of the Lord, because that's a sign of worship. So Abraham is saying, he's my shade, he's my nutrients, this covenant relationship is forever. I'm going to worship him. So he calls on the name of the Lord. One commentator, this guy John Walton, he says, I think that the real reason Abraham planted the tamarisk tree is because of roots. Roots in the land, roots in God, roots in the covenant. His relationship with God is deeper in Jesus. God is deeper in the land, in the seed. Everything grows deeper. Just think about this metaphor with me. You don't have to be a, a gardener. You don't have to be, you know, be a botanical expert. But roots, they already convey so much. Roots say that you spread your roots deep into the soil. 
That means when the weather is bad, if your roots are deep, you could weather the storms. That means if your roots are strong and they're in the right soil, when suffering comes to your life and there's ups and downs like a roller coaster, instead of being erratic, you'll be steadfast because your roots are there. If your roots are weak or shallow in the wrong soil and you have wind and you have fire and you have a gust of anything, it's going to blow you away. And sometimes your life is like that. Do you know why? Because your roots are not deep in the covenant of God. Your roots are deep in an idol of this world. That's the imagery of the roots. It grounds you. Roots also identify you. Depending on your roots will determine what kind of plant you are. It's the source of your strength. It anchors you in times of suffering. How grounded you are, what stabilizes you, where you get your nutrients. Roots are the source of your beginning. So here's a simple question, friends. Where are the roots of your life? Is it in money? Is it in power? Is it ultimately in performance? Is it in comfort? Are the roots of your life in approval of people? What are the roots of your life? Because if your roots are in anything except Jesus Christ, then the Bible says you are going to be a flimsy plant or tree and only the wind, a small gust, would blow you over. Friends, let's think about this together. Just as the roots are the foundation and source and nourishment for plants, idols can become the foundation and source and nourishment for your lives. If we plant our roots in money, then we're going to try to get our nutrients, our identity for money. Then you start comparing bank accounts, purchasing power between everyone else because that's the source of your identity. If your roots are grounded in people's acceptance and approval of you, that means when people like you, you feel good. But when people reject you, then you crumble and you get blown away and you're uprooted. If your roots are going to be in power and control, you like telling people what to do and feeling like you're the boss, the more people that you use and abuse and command, you're going to feel good. But if you ever lose that power, you're going to lose a sense of yourself because you've been uprooted. When we place something other than God, at the center of our lives, we become dependent on that thing for sense of security, meaning, and purpose. It becomes our system of roots. It feeds us and supports us. It's not what we truly need. Because if you're rooted in Jesus, whether people love you or accept you, you'll be steadfast and grounded. If you're rooted in Jesus, whether you make a lot of money or little money, and it does affect life, but it won't uproot you. If you're rooted in Jesus, whether you're entry level or whether you're a CEO, yeah, it'll affect your life, but it won't uproot you. You'll have nutrients, you'll have steadfastness, you'll have a life, an identity, an origin, and a beginning because your life is rooted in the very covenant of God. Now, I'm really going to press this metaphor forward. I think the idea of roots also means that, if I stretch this metaphor, is that some of your sins in mind are underneath the surface because you can't get the roots. You don't know what kind of roots they look, how deep they are, unless you pull it out like a weed. And you see, oh, this is how long the roots are. It tells us in this sort of pastoral analogy that roots tell you that your sins are underneath. And so sometimes you can't always tell what your sins and your idols are because the heart of your, the roots of your sin are underneath and not always shown. Think about it this way. 
You know, this is a true story of a woman in New York. You know, she had the roots of her, her idol was really acceptance. And so she idolized love and marriage, got married too quickly because she just wanted to be accepted and adored and loved and cherished. And she wanted that from a husband more than Jesus, entered into marriage, became a horrible marriage. They got a divorce, and she went through depression and was devastated. Then all of a sudden, she says, I'm going to make a switch, and she devoted herself to success and work. You know, in New York culture, they work a lot out there. We work a lot out here, too. So she devoted and was married no longer to her husband, but she was married to her work because what gave her acceptance and culture in life was to be smart and successful and to move up the corporate ladder. You're thinking, wow, those are two different idols. No, it's not two different idols. It's the same root with different fruit. It's an acceptance, a validation, because you have to dig underneath. You got to go deeper to say what's really driving her to get married and driving her to work hard was really because she wants an acceptance by her peers and people around her. Even this one pastor was saying, like most pastors, we struggle with fear of man, and that's the root of a lot of our idolatry and acceptance by people but it really is underneath because it's so deceptive. You know, so this one pastor was saying, member called him up. He said, no, pastor, I thought you were going to email me about that event. And because he wanted to save face and look like a competent pastor, he lied to his member. He says, I didn't forget. I got really busy. I'm going to send you that email right now. And then he hung up. The problem was is that his wife saw him do this. And wives know the husbands well. And said to the husband, you didn't remember, you just forgot, and you wanted to look good and save face in front of your member. And the pastor was like, yeah, yeah, you're right, I'm so sorry, and I just crave my member's approval. So it happened again, forgot to send something, email, member calls out the pastor, and this time he owned up to it. He says, I'm sorry, I forgot, please forgive me, I'm going to send that email to you quickly. So it looks like he's actually fixed, but he said as he kind of thought about it, the root of his idol was really the same, fear of man. He says, the first call, I want fear of man of my member. And the second call, when I owned up to the member, it was fear of man because I wanted acceptance from my wife. See, it's the same root. Whether the member or the wife, he was living to get approval by somebody, and that's how deceptive it is. So the tamarisk tree helps you to understand this, that you have roots built in some sort of idol in this world, but it has to be built in Jesus so that she could be steadfast and grounded in life. But don't be deceived because roots go underneath the surface, so you have to dig in deep. That's why one of our core values here is counseling and community. It gets into the root of it. It digs up, actually, the idols of your lives. You can't just look at your actions because you can't always tell what kind of idol you have. You have to dig in deeper. You have to uproot the idols in your lives and then plant yourself more deeply into Jesus Christ. See, what I'm trying to say is this as we close. When it comes to your life and being grounded in God, you want to be organically, botanically attached to Jesus, rooted in him, not mechanically attached. Some of you are mechanically attached. Do you know what that means? It means that you go through the emotions, you go through the routines, and you think that you are connected to Jesus, but it's not a real connection, it's just a hook, or you're like a pin, or you're like something sharp where you hook on to Jesus mechanically, and you think I'm connected to Jesus because you go to church, you go through routines, you join a committee, but there's really not a spirit-filled life connection to Jesus through prayer and repentance and reading the Bible and receiving his chesed and going out, and that's why your life is so empty. That's why you're not growing in a Christian life. 
That's why you don't feel the fullness of the spirit of your union with Jesus because you're mechanically attached and not organically attached. And that's why Jesus, he never says, Jesus never says, no, I am the factory and you are the machine. You are connected to me. What does he say in John 15? I am the vine and you are the branches. You are organically attached. You have to be organically, relationally attached to Jesus through this life-giving union, spirit-wrought faith that has brought you into relationship with Jesus where you live life with him. And you grow deeper roots by praying to him and reading about him and loving him and worshiping him and really receiving Jesus from one another because we're called into community. You have to be, you have to be botanically, organically attached. You can't just have informational knowledge about Jesus. You need relational knowledge of Jesus. You can't just have cognitive knowledge about Jesus. You have to have spirit-filled heart knowledge about Jesus. So if you're running on empty and you feel like a shell of a Christian, just ask yourself, are you rooted in Jesus or are you just mechanically hooked onto Jesus? Because the Apostle Paul says in Colossians 2, verses 6 or 7, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. He's your sphere of existence. Walk with him. Swim within him. Rooted and built up in him. Established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. That's the summary of the Christian life, according to the Apostle Paul in his letter to Colossae. Rooted and built up in him. Established in the faith, as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Friends, if you want real change, a spirit-wrought change through the hesed of God for you, look for it in the way that you can show that hesed and love to people as you are simultaneously rooted and built up in the hesed of Jesus Christ for you. No longer just through the motions, but really through the life-giving spirit of being botanically, organically attached to the vine of Jesus Christ. Let's turn to the Lord. Let's pray, friends. Father, we thank you so much for the grace that you've shown us in your son, Jesus, revealed to us in your word. We pray, Lord, for all of us that we submit our lives to you and help us to continually cultivate this relationship with Jesus. May we cut off the weeds that hinder our walk with Christ. May we receive the nutrients and the soil as our lives are rooted and grounded in Jesus Christ for us, forgiving us, empowering us, clothing us in his righteousness. Thank you guys so much. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, I have the privilege.